and that we are very much a party in transition. Um, and you know what what set of ideas ultimately went out will be determined by our voters, uh, and that's actually a beautiful thing, and we should celebrate that. Hello, I'm Oren Cass, Executive Director of American Compass, and welcome to the American Compass Podcast. On December 9th, American Compass partnered with the American Conservative to host Senator Marco Rubio and Congressman Anthony Gonzalez for a discussion titled, What Next? A Multi-Ethnic Working-Class Conservatism. This event followed the release of our Trump administration retrospective, What Happened? And looking to the horizon for a conservative agenda that appeals to a multi-ethnic working-class base. Please enjoy the episode and check out more of our work at AmericanCompass.org. I'm Warren Cass, Executive Director of American Compass, and, and thrilled to have Congressman Anthony Gonzalez here with us as well. Uh, I'll just take a moment to do exciting promotional material as, as we load up. Uh, in particular, uh, this event is part of a series we're doing for our symposium on the Trump administration uh, at American Compass in partnership with the American Conservative. It's called uh, what happened, the Trump presidency in review, and you can uh, check that out at americancompass.org. Uh, we also had a great event yesterday discussing that with uh, myself, Rachel Bogard from the Conservative Partnership Institute and Ross Douthit from the New York Times. Uh, and that video is, is available on the website as well. Uh, one programming note, the, the Senate has chosen to schedule a number of votes right in the middle of our event. So Senator Rubio will unfortunately have to join us late and probably step out early, but I, I suppose the Senate causing of problems is, is an occupational hazard for, for everyone in Washington, uh, and, and especially our, our first guest who we'll, who we'll start with, um, Congressman Anthony Gonzalez. You represent uh, Ohio's 16th district. Uh, you are uh, also a member of, of two committees I'm fascinated by, the, the Financial Services Committee and, and the uh, Science, Space, and Technology Committee. Uh, and, and my experience has been one of the, the most forward-thinking and, uh, and, and really engaged uh, members of the House in, in really charting a, a course moving forward for conservatives and, uh, and a Republican Party that's focused on the, the interests of workers. So we are, we're thrilled to have you here with us. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Honored to be here and uh, just uh, excited to see where the conversation goes. Yeah, I, I think it would be great to start with with a little bit of, of table setting and, and would love to have you sort of tell us a little bit of, about your district and, and in particular your experience over the last few years with constituents getting a feel for, you know, what they what they care about and, um, and, and, and how that was what you expected or, or maybe changed your thinking a little bit about about what you needed to be focused on. Yeah, so I think like most members, I, I, I think that I have the best district in the world. So um, Northeast Ohio uh, has been home for, for most of my life. Um, and, you know, we are, as a, as a community, anytime you pull it or you talk to voters or you're out and, and just kind of trying to get a feel for, for where, where the constituents are, um, you know, at the end of the day, we are primarily a, a jobs in the economy, stable economy, uh, affordable health care safe communities type of a district. Um, and I, I actually think that's that's probably broadly true across many parts of the country, uh, but it's most certainly true uh, in my district. And, and we have a, a healthy mix economically of a lot of uh, manufacturing, so a lot of steel and, and uh, tied to automotive and, and different things. Sorry if you're hearing the buzzer, they're calling boats now on our <laughs> side. Um, but uh, so a lot of manufacturing, uh, a, a good bit of healthcare as well. We have the Cleveland Clinic, University Hospitals, 
uh, Altman hospitals. We have tons of hospital systems in our area. Um, and then also a good bit on the financial services side. People don't realize this as much, but a, a, a healthy number of major insurance companies are actually headquartered in and around uh, my district. So um, it's, it's a, a very diverse economically. Um, and then we have a good bit of ag as well in the southern half of my district. Um, but in terms of what folks care about, again, it's, it's sort of those kitchen table issues uh, and making sure that, that they can take care of their families uh, and build their own version uh, of the American story. Yeah. And, and so how does that, uh, how does that intersect with the, the message that, um, that, that, that you find most effective to, to focus on? And, you know, I think there's the, the Republican Party, unfairly to some extent, tends to be caricatured as, as sort of focused on Wall Street issues, um, whereas, of course, there's a, a much broader agenda that it's always talked about. Um, but, but it seems to me there's increasingly variety in, in how Republican representatives in, in particular choose to connect the agenda to, to their constituents. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm wondering how, how, how you do that and, and what you find to be the most effective um, kind of entry points to that kind of discussion. Yeah, so as part of my background prior to this, I, I um, was CEO of a, an ed tech startup. So I, I come from a sort of a business background, from a, a technology background. And there's a principle uh, in, in software development, which is basically translates to be obsessed with your customer, spend as much time with your customer as possible, um, and, and then build products to, to, that your customers will love. Um, we take the exact same approach with respect to this job. So I have as many conversations as humanly possible with as many constituents across a broad range of, of backgrounds um, and, and we just make sure that that's how we get our message out. Uh, and again, I, I, I'm very transparent with what I focus on. I just say, listen, guys, here's, here's what matters to me. I want to make sure that every family in Northeast Ohio believes that they live in the greatest place in the world and there's ample opportunity uh, to, to apply your skills, whether you are a PhD math student or you're a union carpenter or anything in between. Uh, I want to make sure that, that this economy works for you and that you have uh, everything you need to succeed. Uh, and so that's, that's the message we carry. Um, and it's typically received well, uh, because again, I think that's where our folks want us to focus and where they don't want us to focus uh, tends to be in sort of the, the Twitter battles of the day and in the woke cancel culture and all this, this sort of nonsense that I think has permeated the system. Um, they want us focused on kitchen table issues, making sure that their lives are better. And that's, that's what we try to do as much as possible. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And Senator Rubio, thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us and, and squeezing, squeezing this in in the middle of the votes. I know it's, it's hectic in the Capitol during, during these periods. So really appreciate you being able to join us. Um, we, we were just starting to talk about uh, sort of the, the, the standard conservative message and, and how that resonates with uh, constituents and and then places where maybe the, the the standard message needs updating or 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 things that you've found in recent years um, resonate more or less than 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 what Republicans have traditionally focused on and and so would love to get your thoughts as well on just how you've how how you've found kind of the traditional conservative message to be exactly the right one uh, it, it just needed to be stated more clearly versus places where you've found there there need to be updates or or rethinking to um, to addressing today's problems. 
Yeah. First, I apologize. We're in the middle of these three nomination votes. We got the first one in there, but they're supposed to be 15 minute votes, but they really aren't, especially with the social distancing. And um, but so we'll have a few minutes here before the next one. And it's great to see Anthony again. And so I'm sorry I missed the first end of this. But um, look, the way I put it is this way. I think by and large, uh, the majority of Americans believe that the federal government shouldn't be involved in everything, that there are some important things the federal government has to do, like protect us from foreign countries that seek to do us harm and, and, um, and things of that nature. Uh, but by and large, that, that's how they feel about it. And that's really been the core of conservatism for a long time is sort of limited government and federalism. The notion that it's at your local and state level where to the extent government needs to be involved, it should be involved and be more effective. That said, it's not an anti-government message. In essence, there are things they, they believe, and I think rightfully so, that our government exists to serve us, to serve people, not to serve the market, not to serve uh, the, the international community. Um, to the extent that working with the international community is good for Americans, they're for it. Uh, to the extent that a vibrant market is good for the creating the kinds of jobs that people need, they're for it. I'm for it. I believe in the free market. I, I, I reject and abhor socialism. I think it's a terrible way to organize your economy. But in those instances in which the most efficient outcome, which is what the market is going to give you, is not good for America, they think we should do something about it. So, for example, it may be more efficient to make, you know, protective equipment for a pandemic or pharmaceuticals in China. I'm not sure that's in our, most people agree that's in our national interest. It, it may be the most efficient outcome for all kinds of industrial capacity to relocate overseas, but it's not in our national interest to have entire communities gutted thousands upon thousands of good paying stable jobs wiped out and the nation losing industrial capacity and it's those instances where they want government to sort of when it has to choose between the efficiency and the national interest to choose the national interest and, and I think that's the part that really uh, is important and then I think Anthony alluded to it as I kind of came on here and that is um, you know I think there's this growing sense in this country, and I, I don't think this is just on the conservative side. I think it's across the center and even somewhat to the left that it's gone too far on the sort of wokeness, political correctness, careful what you say stuff. Um, ironically, as I pointed out yesterday, there, there is one ethnic minority group that it is acceptable to attack on Twitter and call names and vilify. At this moment, that happens to be Cuban-Americans for some reason. You can say anything you want about them on Twitter because they happen to have voted for Trump, but as an aside, both because of Anthony and I's heritage. But going back to the point of, yeah, you shouldn't be rude and nasty to people. You should avoid saying things that are unnecessarily irritating or offensive. But we've gotten to the point now where you can't even hold a comedy show uh, on a college campus. Uh, you can't even invite speakers from different perspectives. Listen, it's difficult to even accept an invitation to speak at any um, commencement ceremony because you know there'll be five or 10 woke students who are going to make a spectacle out of it and ruin it for everybody else. So I think it's gone too far in that direction. And a lot of people are just tired of being policed. And, and now I'm going to see some of the hypocrisy that emerges in terms of how words are policed online, social media and the like, it only adds fuel to that fire. So there's most certainly an element to that. And the last one I would make is, I think most Americans are not ideological in the sense of a think tank or so forth. But I do think they have a tremendous amount of common sense and don't like crazy ideas and crazy stuff. Like, let's get rid of the police department. And instead, when some guy's holding a knife to his wife's throat, let's send in a counselor to speak to them. Or, you know, let's, um, let's go ahead and shut down 
and put in jail someone who dares show up to work at a small business, but let's raise a bunch of money to bail out arsonists and looters. I think people look at that and say, that's, that's nuts. It's crazy. And, and there's people out there on the political left that identify with those positions I've just uh, outlined. And, and I think some of that comes across as well. Yeah, I think it's an interesting phenomenon as we look at what's happening in, in politics. You know, there, there, are, there are some voters that, that seem to be kind of moving toward the Democratic Party. And then there are a lot of voters who, partly on economic reasons, partly on, on exactly the, the, the social and cultural ones you just mentioned, Senator, seem to, to be moving just as quickly to, to the Republican Party. And, and I think that's one element of, of what a lot of folks are talking about, which is this idea of a sort of multi-ethnic working class conservatism, where it, 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 it could be, um, to your point, it's not, it's not ideologically conservative, but it, it's a fundamentally conservative approach uh, on both economic and social issues that 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 could be really appealing and and so I guess in now I am the think tank <laughs> wonky guy and, and want to to talk a little bit about about some of the policy that that that, that could imply and, and so would would love to ask each of you just just for whatever sort of the the number one thing at, at the top of your list that maybe hasn't been focused on in in recent years but but that you see as as, as something that really deserves focus um, as, as, as we move in this direction. So um, I guess maybe Congressman, if, if you have one that, that you'd like to start with. Absolutely. So I think the, the biggest policy shortcoming, in my opinion, uh, of the conservative movement for the last however many years is on healthcare. Um, we have got to have an answer to the Medicare for all debate. Uh, and right now, in my perspective is we've had some answer, but we haven't coalesced around it for sure. Um, and people are rightly upset about this. And back to what Senator Rubio said, I don't think my folks are particularly ideological on it. Uh, when you talk about a surprise billing event, when you talk about somebody who makes $40,000 a year, they have a heart attack, they think they call the right paramedic to take them to the right hospital, somebody's out of network and boom, they get hit with a $100,000 bill. That is horrifying for people. Uh, and, and we need answers to that. Uh, but we need a, a more comprehensive answer. And, you know, I think the left, frankly, from a marketing standpoint, does an okay job of saying, you know, every nation in the world has universal health care, we need universal health care. So we need Medicare for all. What they don't tell you is that nobody has Medicare for all. Uh, every different international system is completely different. Uh, they have different rules, different regulations, etc. Uh, but they all push towards a system where a family feels financially secure in their healthcare decisions. We don't have that, uh, and we need to have it as a party. Uh, I think if we're going to build a stable coalition over, over many years, uh, it needs to be something that we own because it's so central to what should be the governing principle of conservatism, in my opinion, which is to create a system where stable, secure families have a place to grow and prosper. Uh, and, and without that healthcare piece, I think we're going to be fighting an uphill battle. That's great. Senator, you're, you're not allowed to yeah. take health care now, but you can have any other one. Well, for, I just want to echo what he said about that. I mean, it, you know, imagine I know people like, you know, your son or daughter hurts his I, a kid on my son's team, right? Hurt his shoulder this year a couple of times. He goes to one place and they say, oh, well, we're going to do an MRI. It's like a thousand dollars. And he goes to another place and they're like, oh, no, we can do it for a hundred. So to a lot of people, it doesn't make sense, but most people don't have the time to sort of shop between places and so forth. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. And the other is the pharmaceutical side. You know, I mean, these medicines out there, some of them are like cents. And then the others who have been around for a while, just as long are like, you know, $2,000 a month out of pocket. And so um, there's some 
real incongruency there about how all this works and, and, and on the preventive side, it actually costs us money. So we do have to have an answer. But the other I would say is industrial policy and something that people on the right have often looked at is, you know, the government taking over industry. That's not what it involves. It does involve saying, look, we can't just be a country that invents things. It's great that we do. And it's great we have people that can design things and do all kinds of innovation on software and on technology side. But ultimately, if you're not the country that makes those things, eventually you won't be the one that invents it either. I mean, those two things are interrelated. Not to mention, you can't have a strong country unless you have millions of stable, good paying jobs that allow people not necessarily to get rich, but to live stable, secure, prosperous lives, retire with dignity, live in a safe community and give their kids the chance to add a better life. If you don't have that, that's the glue that holds a society together. And if your economy isn't producing that kind of employment, you're going to have big problems, big societal problems that will manifest themselves sociologically uh, and, and politically. And, and I think we see that today. And, the, and, and one of the interesting di dividing lines in American politics in the last year has been between the people who get paid to work from home and are all for shutdowns and the people who, if they don't go to work in person, don't have a job, don't have a business and can't get paid. And so it's basically been a year of people who get paid to work from home on Zoom lecturing the people who don't about why everything needs to be shut down. And it's creating real tension that we think is, is, that I've seen brew into a bunch of different things. And, and how, do you, how do you balance that with, with the point that you raised earlier, which is that you know, at the end of the day, both conservatism, but, but also how constituents feel is they, they wanna see less government. They wanna see uh, you know, the, the market allowed to work uh, rather than having kind of you know, bureaucrats doing it. And, and so how do you, how do you balance both both talking about that and then and then also doing it? Well, the notion that we have a truly libertarian free market is a myth. We we have anytime you apply rules or laws or conditions on an economy, the economy is going to behave according to that. So we have rules and laws right now. In many cases, they just incentivize the wrong thing. You know, they incentivize, for example, um, taking the money your company made and rather than reinvesting it in a new capacity to help that company grow and create new jobs, oftentimes the incentive is let's just use it to buy back shares to increase the value of the shares so that our shareholders are, are happy. There's nothing immoral about it. There's nothing wrong about that. I'm not pretending that we make it illegal. I'm just saying, why do we incentivize that? What we should be incentivizing is if you do that, that's fine. And we'll treat it this way you do a dividend. But if you, but if you take that money and actually invest it in building a new factory in America, that's where the incentive and the benefit will come from. Likewise, uh, on the critical industries, we have to wake up to the reality that if you're in the pharmaceutical industry or the rare earth minerals industry, you're not competing with a private Chinese company. You're competing with a nation state that is subsidizing and backing that company and, and, ultimately you're gonna lose that battle. They're prepared to wait you out. They're prepared to deny you access to that market while they have an exclusive. And they're prepared to steal your intellectual property to replace you. So we have to acknowledge that if, we, if there are some industries that we have to wanna to have in either domestic or allied capacity, then we're gonna to have to do some things to incentivize that being located in the US, not by government owning it, not by flooding them with money, but, but just by ensuring that the way we tax things and the way we regulate things um, are aligned appropriately according to those. So, so really all I'm saying is we, to the extent government is involved in our economy already, let's make sure that those incentives are pro-America as opposed to um, what we have in some cases today, incentivizing behavior that at the end of the day is not in our national interest. Yeah.
And Congressman, how does that look in, in a place like Ohio, which, which obviously is at the at the heart of deindustrialization and and efforts at reindustrialization? Yeah, I think everything the senator just said, I, I I would agree with in terms of look, the market is how we construct the rules and regulations of of the road, essentially, right? And and it should produce uh, the the right outcomes. Um, and if we don't like the economic outcomes that it's producing, in terms of you know, in my, in my community, for example steel plants leaving or car companies going overseas, going to China or moving to Mexico, uh, we need to think about, okay, what's the right policy response to make sure that those investments actually take place in our community because we need those jobs. Those are so important to the fabric of our, of our society. Uh, so I think that's absolutely right. Where I think people rightly get very frustrated with government intervention in their lives is when it's at the micro level, right? So what can, what can and can't you feed your kid at school? What kinds of books can your kid read at school? What kinds of conversations is your child allowed to have online? And what can you wear to work? And what signs can, what political slogans can you bring to an NBA basketball game that'll allow you to sit there versus get thrown out? Okay, those are the sorts of micro decisions. Um, some of those made by private industry, but others by government uh, that I think drive people crazy. And, and you know, I, I'll give you an example. And again, this isn't government, but it's, it's public pressure. So. Um, one of my colleagues suggested that we boycott Goya, okay, that people boycott Goya because, God forbid, uh, the CEO of Goya uh, went to an event at the White House. I've eaten Goya products. I'm Cuban. I've eaten Goya products literally every day of my life, uh, and it's what I feed my kids. Uh, and so, you know, when you have people either in government or in private industry that are trying to control these micro decisions, uh, I think it drives people nuts because all I want to do is I want to make black beans that my son is going to eat. <laughs> and so uh, that's, that's where I think people get, get very frustrated with sort of the, the micro movements uh, that, that either government or, or public pressure uh, put on individuals and families. Yeah. And, and also, can I just add something, yeah, can I just add something to that? And I apologize because there was like 16 seconds left in the vote. So that <laughs> means I have another five minutes, but I got to run down there and do it. And then I'll run back if I can. But, but I want to add to that because uh, Congressman Gonzalez mentioned um, Goya. I think the hypocrisy really sets people off, right? So here is Nike every day bombarding us with all these messages of Colin Kaepernick, whose right to speak I've defended, uh, whether I agree with some of the things he says or not. He has every right as an American to speak and say what he wants. But they bombard us with these messages at the same time as they are act, up, up here actively lobbying against a bill that targets forced labor in China. And, and so you look at that and say, hold on a second, how can the same company bombard us with these messages here and, and try to, you know, stigmatize people in this country, but you're lobbying here against forced labor in China because that happens to be you know, perhaps a source of, of cheap products for you. I mean, people see that stuff and say, this is nuts, this is ridiculous. I've, no <laughs> I've certainly noticed that. Um, all right, Senator, we will let you go and, and hopefully uh, catch you it's again an, at the it's end. A, it's a Federal Elections Commission nomination. That's all, all right. we do. We vote for nominees. So I'll try to run back up and get on if I get at the end because we have a third vote afterwards. But if I miss you, it's great being with both of you again. And Congressman Gonzalez has already been a great voice and star up here. So I'm glad to have shared the stage with him. Thanks for all the work you guys are doing. Oh, we really appreciate your time. Thank you, Senator. Congressman, I, I wanted to pick up on, on one other element from this question of supporting industry, but but to your point, not not the micromanagement rather the kind of big picture questions and and particularly on the question of, of innovation and, and investment, which is sort of the precursor to so much of this. And my impression is an area where there's 
real potential for bipartisan progress. I was curious, particularly given given your work on the the Space Science Technology Committee, what you see as the opportunities there. What 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 you would love to see the sides coming together to to move forward so America maintains that kind of leadership. Yeah. So I again back to what I said at the very beginning. I think the goal of the economic policy should be to create an economic environment where no matter who you are, you have ample opportunity to to create the life of your own, essentially. So union carpenter, PhD math student, everything in between. Um, As part of that, right, uh, we need to seed and to fund the industries of tomorrow. We need to do that because that's where a lot of the growth will come from and growth is good. Uh, But we also need to do that because if we are the ones inventing those, then we are the ones who get to dictate the standards. So on things that are gonna have all kinds of economic and ethical questions like AI and machine learning and these sorts of things, if, if the United States and quantum computing, if the United States is dominating those industries and really leading the world as we traditionally have done, then those technologies will be informed, hopefully if we do our job right, by the values of this country and our allies. And so we have to fund those because so much of the start for those takes place at the university level and in our research institutions. Uh, I talked to Eric Schmidt uh, at one point during the pandemic, and he mentioned, I forget what the dollar amount was, but, but basically Google was started on a, a ten dollars or $20,000 federal grant uh, of some kind. Um, and so these are, the, these are the sorts of investments we need to make so that we can, in fact, build uh, those technologies of the future um, and, and make sure that, that the economy grows, uh, but also that, that we're we're dictating standards. So I, that's where I, I personally think as a country, we could also be more focused. We could definitely be more focused on the industrial policy side, uh, as Senator Rubio mentioned. Um, but I think we're, we're remiss if we don't also say, what can we fund at a basic research level so that we always have that those series of innovations coming uh, so that we can build the technologies of tomorrow? That's so important, and I think the, the the pandemic context has driven that home, and and also goes to the point about how you know we have industrial policy. It's it's a question of of what kind. I mean, the fact that we could do Operation Warp Speed and and develop these kinds of vaccines this quickly, it the that, that's not just the the free market run, running around out there. That that is both decades of of investment in national institutes of health in in universities. Uh, in, in our medical system, the, the way that we support that, and, and then obviously warp speed itself. And, uh, and and we probably need to find more places that, that we can do that sort of thing. Can I make a quick point on warp yeah, speed? Yeah, please. So I, I've said this in a lot of forums. I, I think when we look back 10, 20 years from now, we will see this as the most impressive medical innovation, set of medical innovations in the history of the world. I also would argue it will have the highest ROI of anything we've ever done as a government. If you think about what the cost on our society is, just in this country alone, uh, the cost of our fiscal stimulus packages, the social cost, all the different economic distortions that we've seen as a result of this pandemic, they're all going to be solved because we get this vac- these sets of vaccines up and out into the population. That's just in our country. Then look worldwide. Uh, all of that technology was developed and funded uh, by the United States of America and the ROI on that is going to be absolutely incredible. It's going to blow the doors off of anything we've ever done, I think. That's, that's a fascinating point. It, 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 for, it, it makes me wonder how, what else is out there that could have that kind of, of impact and, and how much investment does it, does it justify up front, even recognizing that 
plenty of investments might have zero ROI and someone will make fun of them as a waste, but you, you have to do a bunch of them to, to then be in position to, to have the successes. Yeah, well, that's the, the venture capital model, essentially, right? I mean, you're, you're going to have some misses. Uh, you're not going to hit on every single one. But the hope is that the entire portfolio of investments that you're making in your research enterprise, over time, the ROI far is, is sufficient that it, it continues to make sense. And that's, that's just something we ha I think we need to get our head around. There is going to be some stuff we do um, from a research and development standpoint that just doesn't pan out. But the things that do pan out are going to be so valuable that they more than cover the losses on, on the misses. Yeah, I, I want to flip flip over to talk about the, the worker side of things a little bit. Um, and uh, probably most so, and I know this is an area you focused on, the, the education question. Um, you know, I, I think there has been for a long time in this country a philosophy of essentially college for all, and the solution to our problems is to get everyone a college degree, uh, and, and in particular, in a sense, the solution to the working classes problems is to get everybody out of the working class. Um, and, and, and the alternative, obviously, is, well, what if we had an education system that, um, that, that served people where they are, met their needs, and, and what they want to do? Um, and, and we can talk about kind of the, the substantive policy ideas in, in a moment, but want to start with sort of the more political question of, of, of how do you talk about that? And, and I, I think there's always been a fear if you say not everybody should go to college, that that's taken as an insult or a put down or someone will say, well, what, well you went to college, didn't you? Or, or whatever else. Um, how, how do you approach that issue? And, and, and how have you found constituents think about it? So this is one of those fun instances where um, being from Northeast Ohio, saying something like, hey, not everybody needs a college degree. I get like the most aggressive head nods, yes. Um, and, uh, and the reason is because we know that. Um, we've, we've seen it in our own economy. Uh, this notion that everybody needs a four-year degree or a higher education degree, um, that is primarily, I have found, a more of a coastal mindset. Um, and when you get into the heartland, when you get into places where people build things with their hands, um, more, more often than not, uh, then that starts to fade. And so, you know, it's, for us, it's actually a very easy message. And, and I carry it, and I'm sorry for the buzz, I carry it every day when I'm back home. Uh, and, and from a policy standpoint, what that looks like is uh, I've been championing what's called the Jobs Act. Uh, for the last you know two years, basically, with Senator Portman, he runs is doing it in the House. And what the Jobs Act would do is it would allow you to apply Pell grants to short-term training programs. So you could pick up a certificate, you could pick up a skill, uh, and then you could put that skill to work directly in the economy. Uh, and that I like that plan for a lot of reasons. One, uh, because for a whole host of reasons, not everybody wants to go to four-year college, or is that the right fit? Um, but also because Pell grants target lower and moderate income folks, you're really helping those at the bottom uh, get that tangible skill that they can put directly in the economy. I think the more often we can do that and be realistic about you know, what people actually want in life um, and, and, and give them the options, the better off we'll be uh, from a policy standpoint. And do you, do you talk with employers about both, both what they need and, and also kind of what role they want to have? Because I think in my experience, in some cases, they want to do the training, but it's expensive. And, and in other cases, they want someone else to do the training, but they'd like to define what it is. And in other cases, they just want the, the person to already show up trained. And, and, but, but the breakdown obviously varies a lot. Yeah, you know, it's, um, 
what I have found is, is there is a, a pretty sizable disconnect between what our employers are looking for right now and, and what they want and, and what's out there. Um, and so in closing that gap has, has been sort of the missing link uh, for a long time in, in, in our area. Um, but, you know, pre-pandemic and now even now that we're, you know, we've got a lot of our businesses back online, uh, it, it is the number one issue that I hear from employers is I have jobs, I could hire 10 people tomorrow, um, but either, you know, the folks don't want to do the work that we have or uh, I just can't find the right people. Um, and and that's, a, that's a skills issue. That's a skills gap issue. Um, but it's also in, in Northeast Ohio, it's also a demographic issue if you just look at how our population has trended and and uh, how young we are and, and what's out there. So there's, we have some demographic issues uh, in our part of the world that, that we need to fix. And, and just to put a fine point on that, essentially an aging population and, and younger folks leaving the area or how yes. does that look? Yeah, so there's, there's definitely an, an aging population issue uh, and a lot of folks, we have what's called the brain drain. It's something that a lot of people um, talk about, which is, you know, folks, grow up in Northeast Ohio, they get educated, they leave, and they don't come back nearly as often as we would like. Um, and so we, we have to figure out ways to attract people back in. Um, that's probably a state and local issue more than a national issue for sure. Um, but but that's that's one component of it. Um, and, and then the other component uh, is that we don't have enough young people uh, in the community already uh, to go take a lot of these jobs. Um, and so that's, that's, uh, that's been a barrier, again, you know, for probably the last four years since I've been in politics, um, but it predates me and I'm sure it'll postdate me in, until we get the demographics right. Yeah. And one thing that I've always found interesting about the, the skills gap conversation is, is the phrase can mean two very different things. It can mean, you know, they don't know, I can't find workers who know how to program the robots the right way or something. Yeah. Uh, but then it can also mean I, I'm having trouble finding people, to your point, who, who want to do this kind of job or who are accustomed to showing up on time or, or even can pass a drug test. Um, and, and it's interesting, one comment that, uh, that we got before the event and, you know, what should we ask that someone said, you know, the opioid uh, epidemic has, has really faded so entirely in, in the face of this other pandemic, um, but, but it's still there. Too. And, and so I wonder to what extent have you seen our, our workforce development issues in the kind of robot programming side versus the, the sort of fundamental we're preparing our young people to, to be productive members of the workforce? So it's both, right? Um, so we, we do have some great programs in, in Northeast Ohio and I'm sure around the country that are designed to help sort of, I would call the next generation of manufacturing. So some of those that, where it's not about you know, how, how big and strong you are, but can you get the machine to do what it needs to do because it's largely automated um, and, and, and move accordingly. Uh, and I think we're doing a better job of training in, the, in that sphere. Um, the second one, which I think is actually harder, is, is the notion around drug use and, and opioid addiction. Um, my personal belief is that in a lot of communities, we have what I would call a crisis of hope, where you know, the, the areas that we grew up, they don't look as vibrant as they once did. Uh, there are a lot of people who leave and, and don't come back and it feels like there isn't as much opportunity as there once was. Uh, and you know, if you have a big factory shut down, that just accelerates the, uh, the feeling. And, and so you see a lot of people uh, who fall out of the workforce for a period of time, uh, either due to you know, getting laid off or, or the factory shuts down, 
And unfortunately, they turn to, to some of these destructive behaviors, whether that's alcohol or drugs or whatever it is. And by the time another job shows up or by the time it's time to get back on their feet, uh, they're stuck in this very vicious cycle uh, of, of addiction. And um, so, you know, to me, there's a whole host of things that we need to do on the opioid front. Uh, and we could talk about a million different policies, um, but building a stronger, more stable economy with a diverse set of, of employment opportunities, I think is the best antidote to that long-term. Yeah, and, and something that's going to be even more challenging coming out of the pandemic, I think the, yeah. the, the, the long-term unemployment that is, is being triggered is, is going to look certainly as bad, if not worse than, than, than the Great Recession. Um, and so that, that, that will require certainly a, a, a whole set of policies as well, I suppose. That's my biggest fear coming out of the pandemic. Uh, I think there's been so much dislocation and so much trust has been broken uh, between government and the people um, with respect to how the pandemic's been handled and, and with respect to how the pandemic's been mentioned. Uh, and that's not criticizing any one person in government. I just think there's a lot of a lot of messaging and, and shifting of, of uh, the narrative that's, that's very frustrating for folks. All the while, the economy has gone in, into a deep recession. Uh, and so you have this broken trust issue, uh, and then you have a very difficult economic environment. Uh, and I think the, the effects of that, it's hard to predict what they're gonna be, but I can't suspect they're positive. I mean, it's, it's gonna have long-term ramifications that uh, we're gonna be grappling with as a society. No, it's, it's definitely a challenge, and, and we're seeing it even now on, on the policy side in, in the ongoing debates about, you know, what, what if anything, should, should the next relief package look like? Um, and and th there's the immediate relief package, but there, there's going to be many more such, such debates going on after that. Uh, and, and I suppose that's, that, that's really the, sort of the, the last topic I, I wanted to make sure we touched on is, is thinking really within the Republican coalition in particular, you know, I, I think some of the things we've talked about here are, are things that would earn widespread nods of agreement and, and others that I think there's probably a lot of disagreement on. Um, and, and from my perspective, anyway, it's, it's, it's an area where, where we have to find a way to make progress um, to tackle exactly those, those sorts of issues you were discussing. And, and so I'm, I'm curious in, in your, uh, conversations and, and experiences, are there, are, are there particular sort of red lines or, or sensitive points that, that you find cause the most uh, conflict or, or maybe just consternation? Uh, and, and, and what do you find are the, the most effective ways to kind of move past those and persuade people and, and build consensus on, on these kinds of issues? Yeah, so I, my personal belief is, is that from a policy standpoint, from an ideology standpoint, uh, that we are very much a party in transition. Um, and, you know, what, what set of ideas ultimately went out will be determined by our voters. Uh, and that's actually a beautiful thing. And we should celebrate that. Uh, because if we are going to go back to policies of old, and, and I think Senator Rubio hit this on the head perfectly, which is in Republican circles, we've historically been just market fundamentalists. And I love, I love the market, I love the free market. It's created more wealth and more prosperity than any alternative system. But we have basically optimized ourselves and said, if you can make a widget, I don't care what it is, for four cents cheaper in China, you move it and you don't ask questions and it's gone. And we hope that 
you know, the, the gains from trade were widely distributed. Well, we know that they don't evenly distribute for sure. Uh, and we know that the costs aren't equally borne as well. Uh, and so as a, as a party, you know, we need to grapple with that reality. And we need to say, what is our policy here? What are we ultimately trying to do? Um, and, and again, I'll go back to what I think is the best part of this whole thing is as folks like myself and Senator Rubio, and there, there are certainly others, um, are touting this sort of multi-ethnic working class uh, policy agenda uh, that, frankly, the president really was the one to, to put on the table for a lot of us. Um, as we're out carrying that message, our voters will let us know. Uh, and and I, I agree with what Senator Rubio said. They want it to work. Uh, they're not as, as ideological, ideologically pure on, okay, you know, what exact policy prescription are you going to come up with that's going to bring prescription drug prices down? They just want them down and then they want them available. Um, and so, uh, and so that's how I think as a party, uh, the debate will continue to evolve. And I think it's a very healthy debate, frankly. Um, it's good to have those dialogues and it's good to see where we move as, as a party and ultimately as a country. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's encouraging to hear. Um, I guess last last question for you, and, and we'll uh, get out of your, I was going to say get out of your hair, but I guess that doesn't quite apply. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Just thinking kind of across the aisle and, and areas where, where you see prospects for progress in what will be obviously a very divided um, Congress in, in the next couple of years. Are, are there any particular things that, that you're optimistic about or, or that you have sort of on, on your own list that that, that you're hoping to, to, to push in particular? Yeah, I think uh, as, as we look at the, the makeup of the Congress, I believe that there's a play for infrastructure in there somewhere. Um, what that ultimately looks like, how it's funded, all those sorts of questions need to be hammered out for sure. Um, but the reality is that this pandemic, if you look at it, I, I always say, you know, it's, it's sort of bifurcated where if you can work from home, it's been uncomfortable for you, but you been okay. Uh, and it, it hasn't been great, certainly, but it's, it's, you know, if you're a wealthy investment banker who can work from home, you know, that's, that's not the worst thing in the world. Uh, if you're a restaurant worker, if you're in an industry that's been shut down, uh, it's, it's been absolutely devastating. One way to get a lot of people back to work quickly is with the right infrastructure package combined with some training and workforce development, uh, which we spoke about earlier. Um, my hope is that we will coalesce around that as a Congress. But, you know, the reality is we have not been in this environment. Uh, I don't think any member has been in this environment ever where the majorities are going to be so narrow uh, that any, you know, 10 or 15 members that decide to band together can really control an agenda for a day. Um, and so that's, that's going to be the challenge, I think, from a congressional leadership standpoint, uh, but also as rank and file members, is what do we ultimately decide we're willing to hold up the Congress for? Um, and, and I think uh, things like infrastructure, are where you'll see some agreement. That's great. Well, we, we hope to see you going rogue with a, a group of 10 or 15 and, uh, and, and, I like and pushing some of these <laughs> and pushing some of these things through. Um, Congressman, thank you again so much for joining us. This, this has been a wonderful discussion and, uh, and, and sorry to have Senator Rubio coming in and out, but, but thank you to him as well for, uh, for managing to join us in, given, given the schedule on that side of, uh, of the hill today. And, and best of luck to you for the incredibly important work you're doing on, on, on pushing these conversations forward. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be with you. And thanks, everyone, for joining us. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to the American Compass podcast. If you enjoyed this, please tell a friend and don't forget to subscribe. To learn more about American Compass and read our work, 
please visit AmericanCompass.org.